Welcome. This is us with Dr. Crystal Lee Crane. Please note that this interview was conducted over the GTL phone at Pendleton Correctional Facility. Obadiah Ben Yisrael, formerly known as Christopher Duane Peterson, has a complex and controversial story that revolves around a series of crimes committed in Indiana during a short period in 1990. Born on January 20, 1969 in Gary, Indiana, Obadiah later became known as the shotgun killer due to alleged involvement in a spree of murders involving a shotgun from October to December of 1990. Although originally described by a witness as a clean-shaven, slender, white man with long, stringy brown hair, Obadia, a black man, was eventually linked to the crimes through nefarious means. The trials surrounding the shotgun killer spree involved multiple defendants, multiple murder charges, and multiple venues which made the legal proceedings complex and contentious. The story surrounding Obadia's case is controversial for several reasons. From the discrepancy between the initial suspect description and Obadia's appearance to the illegal arrest that impacted the admissibility of evidence, there were several significant factors that influenced the trials. Additionally, the composition of all white juries and the judge's decision to overrule a jury's decision not to impose the death penalty further added to the controversy surrounding the case. The crimes allegedly committed by Obadia involved the fatal shootings of seven individuals. The investigations led to his arrest, along with the arrest of his accomplices, based on information provided by witnesses and co-defendants. The trials that followed addressed the various charges and involved the presentation of evidence, including recanted confessions, witness testimony, and firearm analysis. Throughout the trials, there were inconsistencies and doubts raised regarding the evidence of the use of the confession. Jurors expressed concerns around the reliability of the confession and pointed to flaws in the investigation, such as the failure to collect fingerprints from the shotgun and the handling of the crime scene. These factors, among others, influenced the jury's decision in Obadiah's trial, resulting in both acquittals and convictions. This case serves as a chilling reminder of the dehumanizing and corruptible system of justice we have, and the nature of criminal cases and the challenges faced in the system when attempting to arrive at a just verdict. His story highlights the importance of thorough investigations, fair trials, and the diligent pursuit of justice for all parties involved. Today, we will hear his side of the story and what is needed to get justice for him and the victim's families impacted by the murders. Rescue me. Man, right, this is a song co-written by me and Ak Arun. And it speaks for itself. Y'all rescue us from the madness that's going on in this world. share with our listeners about who you are. I'm a conscious, loving, caring, astute, spiritual man having a physical experience. And I'm constantly evolving from uh, a flesh man from my lower self into my spiritual self. So when I look at the world, I don't look at the world through physical eyes. I look at the world through emotional eyes and through spiritual eyes and and um instead of the things that are occurring with myself 
in the criminal justice system and the things that are occurring out in the world, it's not making me hard. It's actually making me more compassionate because the people who are experiencing such trauma are not really realizing the trauma that they're experiencing. I mean, they, they know that they're going through some things. They're suffering. But the extent of the trauma, the extent of the adversity mm-hmm. that they're going through, they don't really know it because they're in it. And when you're in something, it's subtle, almost like the frog being boiled. Before the frog realized that it's being boiled, it's too late because it's subtle. So the subtle inhumanity towards humanity is going to be something or is something that's going to break humanity. The criminal justice system is just one aspect of what I'm speaking about right now. Yeah. And let's let's dive into that because I really want folks to know what you are doing um, for your, but also for the people who've been harmed. I'm curious if you can let folks know where things are at with your various cases, what you're looking at um, legally right now. I only have one case. Uh, The interesting enough. When these cases first started, um, it, the the term came to be the shotgun killer. It was a series of shootings. So that term stuck. First, that term was applied to um, the individual who eyewitnesses had uh, identified as being the uh, assailant which was a Caucasian male with long stringy hair. So everybody was looking for this person as the shotgun killer. Subsequently, after my two acquittals, uh, the community was up in arms because they didn't know how the system arrested a black man, an obvious black man, was something that eyewitnesses said that a white man did. And... It was clear because of the two acquittals and the eyewitness composite sketch. Now, uh, that label has stuck to me, even though I was acquitted twice. I was convicted twice, but one of those convictions had been totally wiped out, totally reversed all the way. So basically what I'm dealing with now is one case from all of that stuff. I passed the lie detector test in 2000, indicating that I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know who did it. I wasn't involved in it in no kind of way. However, the narrative is so deeply ingrained now that I still carry with me the stigma of that name, even though I only have one case. So where I'm currently at is um, I've been through the whole appeal system. Uh, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and was denied. Now, there are many, many flaws in my case, and the attorneys that have taken my case have been attorneys that they they did their jobs. I just needed stronger representation. And at this point now, there, there are not too many people who will touch my case because it's so political. So many people rose on the back, on my back, and were promoted and uh, received other type of compensation based on my case that people are afraid to touch my case now. So what I really need is is uh, a public outcry, a public demand for somebody to open this case back up, somebody to look closely at this case now when the passion is not so high, when the bias is not so high. I need a legal team right now who's who has the courage to actually open this back up and look into um, uh, the Lake County uh, violent, violent Crime Task Force that was established to investigate these crimes because that's one thing that was denied us during trial 
is the ability to see the notes that that task force had gathered during their investigation. It's ironic that even after I was arrested and um, gave statements implicating myself, false statements, that the, that task force was still looking for a Caucasian male, for the Caucasian male that's in that composite. So I say these things to say that I need somebody who's willing to actually put in the time to uh, sift through the carnage, the record, and actually realize what had been done. And so within the the, the cross-racial identification issues, right, we're looking at clear investigation patterns that one but also, you know, didn't have the necessary teeth. And we already know that historically in present day, happening right now, they're using black and brown bodies to validate the criminal justice system that has become about profit, right? Oh, um, yeah. And and a piece of that means you're feeling it on the end of, you know, needing people to take this case, regardless of the potential political pressure, um, regardless, because it is the just thing to do. It, it deserves another look. It deserves all, it, it deserves, it deserves a spotlight, not just a look. It deserves a spotlight. I can promise you that if a spotlight was shown on this case, something would come about to stop that investigation and I would receive some type of relief because the powers that be do not want this case open. They don't want people digging into this case. Can you share a little bit with us about your background in life before the wrongful conviction? Uh, well, prior to my wrongful conviction, uh, I was actually AWOL from the Marine Corps, but let's just go back a little bit before that. Uh, my childhood, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, in a single parent home, and part of that part of that time was not only in a single parent home, but we had a stepfather from time to time, and he was in the military. So we traveled quite broadly when we were with my stepfather. So uh, we experienced a lot. So I can't necessarily say that um, my experiences as a child were bad. I didn't grow up in the streets. I didn't have the the general excuses for criminality that that some in our community have so I don't have that as an excuse I grew up in a pretty middle-class um, community I had like eight eight aunties and nine uncles and a great-grandmother a grandmother a grandfather my mother we all grew up in the same house when I was growing up so had a lot of love growing up but back to uh I'm sorry I said, I love that. You had, sounds like you had a whole squad. I had a foundation, so I knew what love was and, as I said, didn't have the typical excuses. But being a military child at time, from time to time and continuing to be displaced from one place to another, it was difficult to um, grow roots. And when you don't grow roots as a child, it's difficult to formulate bonds and friendships and whatnot because you're constantly being displaced from one place to another. So when I finally um, grew roots, we had separated from my stepfather, so we were starting over again. And uh, we moved into what was then called a housing development. It's called a project today, but it was a brand new housing development in Glen Park. So uh, that was my first time really having roots in a community and uh, interacting and making friends with individuals who were in those type of that type of neighborhood. So, uh, yeah. In in that type of neighborhood, growing up, education was not really uh, enforced. It was not something that friends at that time saw as cool in the community. So I would read during the daytime, had a bookmobile card and everything, and then during the nighttime. I would be in the streets at an early age, like 12, 13, 14 years old. And being that my mother was a single parent and she worked 
two, three jobs sometimes trying to provide for us, it was kind of like easy to be in and out of one world without her really knowing that. So, um, I never had a criminal record. I was like one of those smart criminals. So I never had a criminal record, whereas the ones around me did. Uh, I came to a point where I was 17 years old where I could have went in either way. And at that point in time, I found out that my stepfather, who I thought all those years was my real father, was not really my real father. So at that time, I went into full-fledged rebellion. So as I could have went one way or another way, I went into the streets full-time. And I kind of got into a little trouble at 17, which forced me to um, make the choice between going to juvenile detention center or enlisting early in the Marine Corps, which is what I did. I enlisted in the Marine Corps. So upon graduation from high school, I went off into the Marine Corps and uh, didn't like that structure at all. So two and a half years into it, I ended up going AWOL and ended up being on the same streets that I tried to avoid when I was 17 or 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So this is how I came to run into the individuals who who I would eventually um, catch a case with. Yeah. And that's, you know, I'm really glad you're sharing in that context because a lot of it is about who we're around and who we're associated with at that time. Yes. And and so thinking about then from now, you know, how do you, did you define community at that time? And how are you defining community for yourself right now? Uh, Well, at that time, I really didn't have a, a, a conscious definition of what a community was. I just knew the way that I grew up. Uh, I grew up at a time where the neighbors down the street had permission to to uh, discipline you if they seen you doing things, and then they would call your parents, and then when you got home, you would be disciplined also. So that was my vision of what a community actually was. I just didn't have a working definition or a conscious uh, idea that that's what that really was. However, now, uh, doing studying, I realize that uh, a community is 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 a locale of individuals who have a common purpose and a common unity. It's a, it's it's like a symbiotic relationship, where utilitarianism is basically the key, where you want the the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, or greatest number of individuals, and the community does not work without everyone um, putting forth an effort to make that community sustainable for not only the, the 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 elders but the children as well. Right. And that's a good word. I like that. That's something that's paid very a little very little attention to in this day and age, discretion about anything. And uh you can basically just look at the political atmosphere right now and see what's going on there to uh get a good idea of what's going on in the neighborhoods now because there are no more there are very few communities these days so it's going on in the neighborhoods and going on in 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 various cultures and and subcultures these days so many tears so many selfishness and arrogance has caused my exodus from you Common things had me so subdued. I know that I'm a man, I'm not perfect. Although you show me your will and your purpose, it's like my soul raised a war that was worthless. Now I'm hurting. Yahweh, please. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think it's important um, for my guests and the listeners on this show for us to be able to connect feelings with facts. And with that, I'd like us to, to tap in to the question around your personal experiences and what it was like for you to be arrested and charged for these crimes. Oh, wow. Um, 
going back to that time is it's 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 a very uh uncomfortable time because at that I was 22. Well, I had just turned 22. And I knew about the shootings that were going on in various communities in Lake County at large. But being in the streets, that's not something that you're really paying attention to. It's just something that you know because it's in the newspapers every day. But it's not something that you're actively paying attention to because that's not really your world. So I didn't realize how um, extreme the atmosphere was at that time until I was arrested. So when I was arrested, um, I wasn't even arrested for the crimes that I ended up being charged with. I was arrested for an attempted an attempted murder and attempted robbery at a mall. So, to my surprise, uh, on the on the way to the police station, I wasn't being questioned about the crime that I had been arrested for. Mm. I was being questioned about the crimes that I had read in the newspaper and didn't have any feeling one way or another about because I was so far removed from it, but it became real at that point. So fear began to set in and I had never been arrested and and um, experienced anything of that magnitude. So when the police were interrogating me for 36 hours and the questions that they were asking and the threats that were being exhibited, I was genuinely scared. Right. Uh, I was surprised and shocked that I would be being questioned about these crimes because from October of um, 1991 till uh, February of 1992, they were looking for a Caucasian male. So I didn't fit that description at all. But they were serious about me and I have been apprehended me as the individual who was responsible for these crimes. So it's a mixture of fear. It's a mixture of shock, it's a mixture of anger, uh, many, many, many emotions. And at that time, I was getting high and drinking out in the streets, living that street life. So all of these things converged into this, 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 this scene that's really indescribable. I mean, I could describe it, but I could never actually convey yeah. uh, the intensity of, of of what was going on. This is the type of stuff that you see on television. Yeah, you're like, is this actually happening? Is this is real? This, exactly. It's, it's that. It's like it's a detachment from reality because this is so far from anything that you know that you're totally detached from it, but at the same time, you find yourself right in the throes of it. You come to that point of, of even detached acceptance. At some point in time, I did, because uh, it was relentless. The questioning and the threats and just the overall intensity of interrogation after denying and denying and denying and denying for so long for so many hours that you you you're eventually worn down and you would do anything to kind of like make this stop and unfortunately they count on that yes they do they really do they count on the the push and pull factors of our human experience where, like, we actually can't take things for long periods of time. That's why it's described as torture, right? Yeah, it, and that's exactly what it is. It's it's psychological torture, which is way, way more effective than physical torture. So, um, you know, they play on your emotions a lot, and they bring your mother in for one or two minutes, and she's distraught. So she's she's asked to be what happened, and I don't know what to tell my mother at this point in time what happened. All I can say is I was set up. I was set up. I was set up. She's telling me that she's going. She's she's being threatened, and she was arrested. And they they told her that 
if she didn't tell them my whereabouts that they when they caught me it, on site they would blow my head off like I did the the victims of these crimes mm. so you know you it, it's just it's unimaginable when you're going through something like that and what mother you know is prepared for that no no mother should have to be prepared for something like that But uh, I, I take all the responsibility because I lived the life at that particular point in time. Realizing now, in hindsight, looking back, I lived the life at that particular time that lent itself to me being exactly where I'm at right now. And I hear that responsibility in your in your voice, right, and in your tone. And what does that what does that mean to you? And, and what do you want people to understand about what that responsibility looks like? Uh, accountability is big. I mean, for e for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And you have to realize, well, we have to realize that no matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, uh, there's a counter to that. There's a consequence for every decision that we make. So we're in control of every action. But the reaction, we have no control over at all. So holding myself accountable for the type of life that I lived and me ended up where I am goes a long way in allowing me to endure what I'm going through right now. Because I did do things. The initial crime that I was arrested for, I did that. Uh, I caused people to suffer. And in, in, in my haste to make money and have material things and uh, base who I am on what I have, instead of earning it, taking it from people mm -hmm. and creating victims. So I take accountability for all of that. I take responsibility for my role in causing harm to my community and harm to people who did not deserve to have harm visited upon them simply because I wanted to satiate my ego. My mama told me through her tears I wasn't living right Smoked to numb the pain and cloak the shame beneath the garb of night But what's done in darkness will always come to light And what confounds the hardness, the choice of wrong and right The dreams of Satan's kiss amidst gorillas in the mist Diverse to church for riches, risk to risk Cause ignorance was bliss, the cause and that effect was this Time to pay and reminisce and fix the way with things I missed And wrote the legacy of Chris so it, that's big to me. Personal accountability and responsibility is something that's big to me. I want to tap into that a little bit and talk about the impact of your confinement. How have you maintained and developed your personal agency? And how do you feel like that's brought you to today? All of this is a process, you know. Um, when I first... When I was convicted, I uh, I had two cases. So after my first conviction, well, I was acquitted twice first, and then I was convicted twice. So after my first uh, conviction in the county jail, they moved you. They moved me out of the regular block and put me into a, a cell block where people were coming back from prison for their PCs and other various uh, uh, legal claims and ventures so they put me in this block and there were individuals who come who had come back from prison who who knew about my case they heard about my case in prison before I got to prison and I had another case pending and I had a death sentence at that time so these guys had come back from the penitentiary and they were educated and I had never seen men in particular black men that educated and it fascinated me so my education started right there. My self-education started right there. And everything I could find on anything, I read. And I continued to read because I, I knew that the person who I was portraying in the streets was not who I really was. That's not who my mother raised. So it was incumbent upon me to become a better person.
Well, at this time, I got arrested. Uh, my fiance at the time was six months pregnant. So my baby was born, my child was born six months after I had already been locked up. And when I seen my daughter, the very first time I seen my daughter, it just, it did something to me. It made me realize that if I was going to provide her with any type of structure or life, I had to be a better person. I had to take agency and responsibility for myself. I had to learn as much as I can because I couldn't, um, I couldn't give her anything if I didn't have anything. I couldn't educate her or tell her anything about the world if the only thing I knew about the world was the four square blocks of the quote-unquote neighborhood or the community. So I wanted to extend my education in a manner that I seen myself in the things that I was learning. And from that point in 1992 to this point in 2023, learning has been a constant quest for me. Education has been a constant quest for me because that's something that no one can ever take away from me. It's your birthright. It's definitely my birthright. It's everyone's birthright. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age when uh, when anything that you want to know about, anything that you're inquisitive about, is right at the end of your fingertips. Google. Anything is, is, is possible to learn. Anything is possible to know just that fast. So uh, I have to learn the hard way, the old-fashioned way, books. There's no Googling things. There's I have to learn that way. So I, I don't... Um, I don't understand how this could be the technological age and you have all of that information readily at the end of your fingertips and the world be like it is now. And they still don't use it, right? They don't use it, or if they do use it, they're using it for something that um, that is not going to progress you any further than your flesh. It can thrive. Yeah. And so I'm really glad you talked about learning. And uh, one of the things that I think that all the listeners can learn from you in is what you observed um, as some of the shortcomings, and that's me being kind, uh, within the criminal justice system that led to your conviction. I really um, I really think that people will be able to learn from your perspective and understanding of what happened and why. Uh, first of all, human, fa human um, fallibility. This is something that, that um, modern human beings don't take into account. We're all fallible. And when you're talking about something as uh, final as a death penalty or something as serious as 120 years in prison, you have to pit that fallibility against the mistake that you might be making. You have to realize that this is a final judgment. So human fallibility is one of the things. And apathy in, in tandem with uh, judicial expediency. This is, a, a for all intended purposes, it's a human um, warehouse. And the system is more concerned with the calendar, the court calendar and getting as many people through this assembly line called the judicial system as possible. So have, they have this thing called, um, you have a, a, a right to certain things. And it's not necessarily justice. It's just the minimum that they have to offer you in order to say that justice was done. 
So when they say due process, that's the process that's due to you. That's a legal term. The process that's due to you. The process that's due to you is not necessarily a process that's going to net the result that's just. It's just the process that's going to get you through the system expediently so that they can move on to the next individual who they're trying to get through the system. It's an assembly line. The only difference is that the product on this assembly line are human beings and not widgets or not radios or not televisions or cars. Because if a car, if the assembly line, some point in that assembly line, something was broke that caused the car or the widget or the TV or the radio to have a defect, they would immediately stop the assembly line and fix whatever mechanism it was at that point that was causing the defect. But when human beings, the assembly line is not shut down when there's an obvious defect, like wrong conviction, wrongful convictions, like individuals who had been on death row for however many years, and then 20 years later, they found out that this individual didn't do the crime. So the death penalty or the death sentence is reversed. But unspeakable trauma is done at that point. Yep. And that's not considered. Living I missed 120 in fame. I struggle just to maintain. Insane is also insane. Not glorifying his name. Assessing just what's a blessing. No longer living in vain. That Torah teaching me lessons. Confess the love and possession. I called upon him, he came. They crucified his son and his number proof of the stain in the land and nodding is strange. See the sinners in fire. Exposing opposing faces, but one of course is alive. Let's transition a little bit, and I want our listeners to be able to understand the personal toll that your incarceration has had on you and your loved ones. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a deep question because me and my family, in it, uh, my immediate family, meaning my brother, my sister, my mother, my children, uh, we we experienced a lot. The blast. The blast, radius, the blast radius of trauma is extensive and is significant. And you don't even realize the extent of the blast radius of trauma until you start communicating with your nieces and your nephews who were not even born when you were convicted. They know your name, but they only know your name from the stories. Mm-hmm. And then they start talking about how they wish that you were there and how they wish that they could meet you and um, they want to talk to you more. They want you to write letters. Um, it, it, it's painful. It's painful because over the decades, you kind of lose touch. You kind of lose the human connection and touch with your family because the only communication that you have at a particular point is over a telephone. And visits are not really enough to substantiate or to continue to hold those bonds together because let's just say even the most steadfast family, they may come and see you once every two weeks. So that's two times a month. There are 12 months in a year. So that's 24 times a year at best. At best. You might see that same family member on the streets if you're not incarcerated 24 times in a day. So when you talk about that breakdown, you're constantly breaking down families. And one thing that I noticed is with my mother. When I got locked up, I believe my mother was uh, 40, 43 or 45. The, the distance between times we're seeing each other, she came more frequently early on than she does or did uh, subsequently. 
so one thing that you notice is that every time you see your mother or your brother or your sister, you see the age. You see the aging that you don't know that's unconscious when you're seeing them every day. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're detecting the distance that's growing between you and them because you're growing, but they're not seeing your growth because they're not around you every day. So the only you that they really know is the you that left the streets. So there's a gulf between the you who you're becoming and the you who they know. And that gulf widens the longer you're in the penitentiary because the visits are becoming more and more infrequent. So now you only have phone calls at a certain point, especially when COVID hit. You only have phone calls. So you're becoming more and more and more distance from your family. And it, it gets to a point sometime where um, it's not even like a family. You know that's your family because you grew up with your family. But after 32 years, the gulf is so wide between who you are and who they know that it, it's, it's, it, there's no way to bridge that. So the the blast radius, like I said, the blast radius of trauma is more extensive than anyone can imagine it is. And your children suffer, your parents suffer, uh, your nieces and nephews, your family, they suffer. This is one of those cases that because Lake County, Indiana is so small, something of this magnitude occurring Every every year, it should be brought up. People should be talking about this every year. But my case is one case that people don't talk about. It does not make the newspaper every year. It's just like swept under the rug as if it never happened. Why do you think people don't want to talk about the case? Well, the press doesn't want to talk about it because they were complicit in the convictions. They were complicit in the cover-ups. The powers that be, it's obvious why they want to talk about it because they did all kinds of things that were just illegal and wrong to obtain the convictions. I had a magistrate in my case, and this is before this is before I was even charged. I hadn't even been arraigned yet. So this magistrate, his name was Ted Page. What he did was he has a statutory duty when I come before him for my initial hearing to tell me what I'm charged with, to read me my rights, these things of such and such and such. What this did do what what he did was he made an agreement with the prosecutors and the police to delay my initial hearing before him so that the police could continue to interrogate me. And then after the interrogation was over and I submitted the false statements, instead of his statutory duty and telling me what I was charged with and telling me I have a right to remain silent and I have a right to counsel, he continued the interrogation. In the transcript, he continued the interrogation for 11 pages in the transcript trying to justify what the police had done and tried to get me to say that I acquiesced in my own illegal arrest and my own delay of my initial hearing. And then after he did this, he testified against me. This is a magistrate. And this is them covering their their back end. This is them trying to cover their back ends. This is before a trial even began. These are the shenanigans that occurred in my case before the trial even began. But one of course is a lie, a band of seeds that we side, reliving scenes that they seen, was nurtured to play in dirt, don't expect their hands to be clean, they respect the scandal and green, rejecting mom and them's dreams, cause pops are felon and fiend, y'all rescue the kings and queens. Rescue me, rescue me. Save me, me. Ooh, 
to obtain the conviction in the case that I'm actually on right now, the single case, to obtain the conviction, the prosecutor in this case argued that since there was no one at the scene of this crime to describe the individual in the composite sketch, uh, it should be um, it shouldn't be in, in included in the trial. The jury shouldn't see it. And the judge agreed. But this prosecutor knew that there was an eyewitness who could describe the individual mm-hmm. in the composite sketch. He knew this. So he lied to the court to get the court to throw out the composite sketch when he knew that there was someone who could actually identify the individual in the composite sketch. So my fourth trial or the trial that I'm in here for right now, the jury never got to hear that eyewitness. They never got to see the composite sketch of the Caucasian male. So they, they didn't know this. And it still took them three days to convict me. Because it was still unclear. Because it was so unclear still. So when you talk about something like this, in reasonable doubt, when you're talking about um, giving someone the death penalty, it shouldn't be a reasonable doubt. It should be all doubt or any doubt. If you have any doubt, beyond any doubt, that should be the standard. Beyond any doubt, not a reasonable doubt. That that encourages and and less critical thought, like uh to earlier thinking about what what makes something reasonable for me is different from you. It's subjective. Yep, it 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 doesn't that's not just it's a subjective standard. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about an individual's life and an individual's livelihood. And this in the midst of so many individuals being exonerated uh, after spending the average that an individual spends, and this is according to a, a University of Michigan study, the average time an individual spends in prison, wrongfully convicted, and eventually exonerated, is 16 years. Wow. And in 2022, this same, this is also a, a University of Michigan uh, statistic. In 2022, there were 233 exonerations in only 26 states. So imagine if you had the other 24 states, the numbers added to that in just one year. If we're talking about 233 in just 26 states in one year, you can imagine that. Why is that acceptable? And and it's not acceptable, right? Like, and that that's our barriers. Like, we we might get one or two out of the state when we need hundreds out of each state, most likely. Right. Right. So me having been acquitted twice, the eyewitness testimony in the in the trials that I was acquitted in, then you have the composite sketch, then you have the lie detector test, then you have the reversal of one of my cases and both of my death sentences. Why is that not cause, at least cause, to say this might be an innocent individual? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it acceptable for me to fall through the cracks? It's not. It's not, you know, you know it, it's not as far as what we what we say, but it is in, in terms of what's being done. What's being done is actually almost always in conflict with what should be done and what people say should be done. And so what would you like people to do? I know we want legal support. What else can be done? Are there other ways that folks can publicly support you? There are definitely ways that people can publicly support me. Um, we're we're um, in the process now of um, putting together an online petition for individuals to sign. So we want this to be multifaceted. We want the word to spread via social media. We want individuals to contact the Attorney General of, of Indiana, Todd Rokita, 
as well as the um, lead prosecutor in Lake County, who is Bernard Carter. And we just need pressure. We need pressure to be bared upon these individuals to open this case back up. I will take all the responsibility in the world for my part in being in prison and the crimes that I committed. But in no way, shape, form, or fashion am I responsible for any of these shotgun shootings. Period. Point blank. I am not. In fact, if we if we do an overview of the evidence, it'll point to the people who are responsible for it. If people who are if people are courageous enough to do that. And I don't need people to depend on what I'm saying. The record clearly indicates it. It clearly indi indicates it. It clearly points out that something is wrong. And I think it's important uh, for our listeners and for, for you to know as well, I'll put in contact information for those uh, legal representatives throughout the state so that people can do that advocacy work. And when you have the petition, I'll put this in there so that people one are able to sign it and share it um, however you'd like it to be done. Okay. That that that's something that that'll definitely work because I believe that the court of court of the court of public opinion holds a lot of sway. And um the fact that I've been unjustly and unfairly labeled is something that frustrates me more than anything else because an attempt to reverse the ingrained established narrative is difficult because it's difficult to prove or disprove a negative. Yeah. And and labels are distancing phenomena. Meaning that if if you label something or put something in a box for whatever reason, over a period of time what you put in that box becomes just that. It's nothing more than whatever it is that you label. And most times when we label something, we label something to distance it from ourselves or to relate to it based on our own individual perceptions. So when you put me in a box and you say, he's the shotgun killer, that's all I am. That's all people see me as. They don't take the time to investigate why I'm being called this, the facts behind it. They don't take the time to speak to me personally to gauge what type of human being I am or talk to people who know me, who are familiar with me, or people who are in prison who have gotten out of prison that have had some type of impact on their lives to change them. They don't talk to my children. They don't talk to anyone to find out if I'm anything more than what I have been labeled as. And I am. I'm much more than what people have labeled me as. I had a conversation with some attorneys one time, and they were fascinated by my point of view on things. They were fascinated by who I was as a person. And my reply to their fascination was this. It's ironic that when I was in the world, you couldn't see me as the person that I am. If I pass by, if I walk past, you would lock your doors or you would clutch your, clutch your purse. But I'm in prison, a place that's meant to dehumanize me and make me other than you. And now you see my humanity. I found that ironic. What was the response? There was no response. Mm. There's various ways that people tell on themselves by how they treat us. Mm. And we know that we, we know how to learn society from that vantage point. We know we learn what we can or cannot do or what is safe to do in one space and not in another based on the level of punishment we get for existing in a particular way. Yeah. yeah. That is not what I would like for our future. This is what I know of how we have been socialized in this space. 
And one of the things I really appreciate about our conversation is one, just the, the depth of your understanding of, of yourself, um, the clear, like deep work that you've done on your own growth and personhood and your desire for the change and to gather the support that, that you feel like you need and uh, you have mine. I appreciate that. That's never going to change. Um, I used to tell Leon all the time, I will give out before I give up. My will to be free, my desire to be free, my effort to be free has to be stronger than the desire, will, and effort of the prosecutor or the system to keep me incarcerated. So I will always say that I'll give out before I give up. Leon Benson was released and exonerated on March 9, 2023 from the Industrial Correctional Facility in Pendleton, Indiana. Leon met Obadia in 2014. I was on death row for 20 years. And in that space, I seen 22 people murdered. And these are individuals who I formed close bonds with. So to experience that, you know, at any one given time, there are 1,500 people nationwide on death row. At the point in time I went to death row, there were approximately 7.7 .7 billion people on the face of the earth. So we're talking about 1,500 people at one, any one given time and 7.5 or 7.5, yeah, 7.5 billion people on the planet. So that's not even a percentage of the pop planetary population that will ever experience anything like death row and live to tell about it in a coherent way where people not only understand you from an intellectual perspective, but can feel you from an emotional perspective about people being executed, murdered. The murder statute reads, murder is the knowing and intentionally killing of another human being. The death penalty is the intentional knowing and killing of another human being. And even worse, it's premeditated. That's what you get the death penalty for. So the individual's in the state or the establishment are violating their own murder statute. So Nietzsche had a statement. Nietzsche, Nietzsche once said that um, he who has the why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has the why to live for can bear almost any how. My why for living is I believe that I have something substantial to offer society. And that might be grandiose to some people listening to me saying, how do you think that you can effectuate change in this society when so much is going wrong? It, it, it's going to take people who have been through precisely the things that me and Leon and the hundreds of other exonerated individuals have been through to change what's going on out there. what it's going to take, ironically, to change things out there. It's you all showing up and being heard and being protected as, as whole men, whole humans, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what I think we're missing is people forget that they have a responsibility to humanize themselves, but in that process then allow other people to be people too. Yeah. And that yeah. is hard for us in this American culture, unfortunately. 
We're not yeah, the it, definitely not the world the best world examples. But um I don't think that the human spirit as resilient as it is, the human spirit is definitely resilient. And in its resiliency, I don't think that it's so jaded or so cynical that something human still there cannot be touched if the right chord were struck. And it's going to take people who have suffered but hold no ill will, um, have no vengeance in their hearts, it's going to take people like that to strike that chord and, and get people to realize that this is wrong. And it's, somebody's got to stop it. This is the last vestige of chattel slavery. Legalized chattel slavery. Systemic slavery. This is the last vestige, the criminal justice system. And it's being poorly utilized because while you're suffering, um, there's a, uh, the victim's families that are suffering because they don't know that maybe they didn't, you know, get it figured out, right? Like maybe they're not whole at this point as well with no, the- everything that has happened. And so, you know, what would, what would you want to tell the victim's families and, and, and how do you think about them in your process? I have to think about them because I'm a victim myself and my family is suffering just like they're suffering. I have so much compassion for um, victims of crime and families of victims of crime because I know firsthand what they're going through because my family is suffering. And I don't want to I don't want to sound uncaring at all. But I only have my family suffering to relate to be to relate it to because I don't know exactly. I cannot say because I'm not there at their dinner table. I'm not there to see that individual who's not coming home and sleeping in that bed. So the only relation I can have that can halfway even allow me to relate and understand is what my family is going through. And if what they're going through is anywhere close to what my family is going through. It may be more. In fact, I'm sure it's more. I have the utmost compassion and the utmost concern and the utmost love for those families. I don't hold them responsible for their opinion of me. Mm -hmm. They're only going by what they were told. So you have two sets of victims. And that's a part of the the larger the true injustice of all of it is that it that there's not a resolution. And what I what I'm very grateful um, that that you've been willing to talk with me and to have me put out this episode uh, to to help bolster more support for you and to get your story out because I think it's important. Um, and you definitely have my support in figuring out um, what next steps could look like. And I think that it's important for us also to think about things on, on outside of the, the legal aspect, which is the practical, tangible piece, but the human aspect of why we're even engaged in this conversation is because, for me, no one is a throwaway person. Yes. That's not engaged in the world. And, yes. and I want to say that so everyone else can hear it but you also hear it. Um, And then I'll let you close with any final remarks. Thank you. I appreciate your support. I thank you for allowing me to um, have my voice heard because at some point, at some points throughout this 33-year odyssey, you feel invisible, you know? People don't hear you. So I appreciate you for extending your platform and... What I want to say is that people can't be so discouraged and inured and desensitized to things that are going on right now because 
they don't feel that there's anything that they can do. People power. People power. If people unified across racial lines, across sexual lines, if people unified and used that people power, they will be amazed at how much change they could affect. But people have to be willing to come out of their shells, out of their respective corners, and unify and put aside the things that they have different, the differences that they have, and focus more on the commonalities because the commonalities are far, far, far greater than the things that we don't have in common. One thing that we all have in common is that we are all the victims of political, corporate um, corruption. Mm -hmm. The people are suffering needlessly because their so-called representatives are now being seen in light of leaders. These are not your leaders, people. These are your representatives. Their charge and mandate is to represent your interest. They are not representing your interest. They're using your tax dollars to fund governments around the world so that their interests are peaked, so that their interests are being paid attention to and not your interests. People in this country are suffering, but they want to talk about how good the economy is. It's not good to poor people. It's not good to people who have to wake up every day and figure out, do I want to pay for my medication? Or do I want to pay for food? It's not good for these people. And these people are people that we know. So I don't want to get off track, but I just want to say that people power is the strongest power on this planet. Because people power is love. And love is the strongest thing in the universe. And if we're not functioning out of love, then we're functioning out of the opposite, which is hate. And hate is going to kill us all. No matter who you, th who you think you are, how much you think you have, if you are functioning on hate you're going to join the ranks of the dead with everyone else. Whether that's literal or figurative. I literal or figurative. I understand that for that just fact is love. And uh, we will end on that. And thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. And thank you for the listeners. Thank you, everyone. This is your loving host, Dr. Christa Lee Crane, and this is us.